This is Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi, sponsored by St. Francis Hospital, Ratchford Eye Center, Hartford Healthcare, MD Advantage, and UConn Health Orthopedic and Sports Medicine. Healthy Rounds provides general information regarding medical conditions and diseases. The information is not intended to create a doctor-patient relationship. You are encouraged to consult your own medical provider for advice that applies to your own medical care. And now, Dr. Anthony Alessi on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com. Welcome to Healthy Rounds, the show that provides you with up-to-date medical information, and we answer all of your health questions. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and it's great to be with you once again this Saturday morning. Uh, This past week, uh, we passed a sad milestone here in the United States. On this, our 75th consecutive program dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic, this past week, we passed a milestone of over 900,000 dead Americans since the onset of this pandemic. No one thought we would ever reach this point. I certainly didn't. I was shocked when I thought we'd get to 40,000, nevertheless 900,000. And there is an expectation that by this summer we will go over a million dead Americans from a pandemic. And on this program, we have begun to really want to focus on what do we need to do to prevent future pandemics? How do we react when a pandemic occurs? And how do we get ready? Because being prepared is the only way we will be safe. This past week, the Moderna vaccine reached full approval from the FDA. So all the folks out there who are say, I'm waiting for more information. I'm waiting for the full approval, not just emergency use authorization. Well, that excuse went out the window. Because it is fully approved. It joins the Pfizer vaccination. So that we now have two fully approved Safe, effective, abundant, and free vaccines. Because that's the key to fighting any pandemic. And soon, we will have a vaccine for children under the age of five. There's debate now whether it's a two-shot vaccine, a three-shot vaccine. I can only tell you that I'm very proud that my family, my children have all been vaccinated. Their children, my grandchildren, have all been vaccinated, except for two who are under the age of five who will be getting the vaccine when it's their time. Because it is so imperative. When you look, there's only one statistic you need to really keep in mind here. The chances of dying from COVID-19 are 97 times greater if you're unvaccinated. That's a fact. You have 97 times greater risk of dying if you don't get the vaccine. Here in Connecticut, our positivity rate has dropped to 6.58%. Last week, it was over 10%. So we're moving in the right direction. And uh, over, uh, we also reached a milestone here in Connecticut because we went over the number of 10,000 Connecticut residents who have died from COVID-19 over the course of the past two and a quarter years. And in the course of these past two years, um, 
we now have a vaccination rate in Connecticut of 76% of adults over the age of 18 who have gotten two doses. But only 51% of adults over the age of 18 have gotten the booster shot. So it's, it's important to understand why we need to have the booster. And we've talked about it multiple times here because the antibodies are somewhat short-lived. And you need to boost it as you go on. So to really be fully vaccinated now, you really need the booster shot. What's interesting is that our vaccination rate as a country, you know, cruises around 60% for people who got two shots. And that's about the same as it is in Europe. So um, it's interesting to note here in Connecticut, 175 people died last week. And those people were either unvaccinated or partially vaccinated. Now, that, that's a tremendous drop from what it was at the height of the pandemic. But let's face it, 175 of our neighbors are dead from a, vac- from a, a, a virus. And it can be prevented. And we know that because we have the vaccine. I mean, just think of this. We have a lot of enemies out there, right? I mean, we, we have to realize that. There are countries that don't like us, don't believe in our way of life. They don't believe in democracy. So when you think about it, shouldn't we have really displayed to others where our vulnerability is as a nation? Because... If someone really wanted to do harm to us in this country, all they have to do is, I don't know, if they spread a poison of some type and we had the antidote, all we have to do is have some folks uh, get on social media and say, oh, the antidote's not good for you. Okay. And suddenly you'd have 900,000 American deaths. So it's important to really note that This pandemic, if nothing else, has really exposed us and our vulnerability as a nation to the rest of the world. It's let them know that many Americans are gullible and will believe what they read on Facebook and don't believe in science. And our guest today is going to be Dr. Setu Vora. Dr. Vora has been a guest on our show many times before. And he always brings with him something. You know, he is a pulmonologist. He's an internist. He's also the chief medical officer for the Mashantucket Pequot Tribal Nation. And Setu has really taken on the role of a physician who focuses so much on wellness. He's talked to us about the 5-15-30 plan, the, the importance of philanthropy and volunteerism to, live, to help you live longer, the ACEs score. So... I really wanted to get him on the air to see what lessons he's learned from the population he works with regarding future pandemics and what we should be doing to get ready for that. Today is February 5th, and it's the Feast of St. Agatha, who is the patron saint of women who are suffering from diseases of the breast, and she's the patron saint of nursing women. I thought that was important to note because it I think came up in the last couple of weeks 
about Chris Everett, the tennis player. And this was interesting because, although it's not breast cancer, her sister died of ovarian cancer. And in doing the genetic testing, Ms. Everett found out she also had the gene. So she prophylactically had a hysterectomy performed. And lo and behold, there was the beginning of ovarian cancer going on without any other detection. So she's undergoing uh, chemotherapy for that, but she was able to get such a deadly cancer because you don't realize people have ovarian cancer until it has spread throughout the abdomen. And in her case, it has been great um, that she has been able to get that cancer early. So again, the Feast of St. Agatha, um, who looks over uh, women with diseases of the breast and the patron saint of nursing women. We're going to take a short break. Then we're going to be back. We're going to talk about some easy things we need to be doing in the state of Connecticut to stay out in front of this pandemic and future pandemics. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi, Saturday morning, 11 till noon on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com. We're back on Healthy Rounds. And, you know, sometimes I just like the simplest solution to a problem. Many times we just get so esoteric. And it may be because I was brought up um, with a father who was an engineer. And as we all know, engineers like to find a more simplified way of approaching a a problem. So it struck me when I read an article this week in the New England Journal of Medicine about mosquito net. It was mosquito net use in early childhood in Tanzania and how it can prevent malaria. In 2020, 627,000 deaths in the world from malaria. In one year, 627,000 people died, and most of them were children in sub-Saharan Africa. There's a term we hear a lot, sub-Saharan Africa, basically all of Africa below the Sahara Desert. It encompasses 42 countries. And it was a long-term study that looked at the benefit of just simply using a mosquito net. Now, anyone who has spent any time like myself living in a tent in a Caribbean country like Haiti goes to realize that the net at night becomes your best friend. Because otherwise, you could be waking up with mosquito bites everywhere. And in Africa, malaria is really much more dangerous in its effect. There are fewer treatments Uh, here. If we use quinine, it, it works well in the Caribbean. And I usually take that as prophylaxis. So a simple solution like a a net was proven to cut down significantly cut down the number of deaths in children from malaria and i thought of the analogy now that we're faced with with the use of masks and i i sometimes sound like a broken record but new data keeps coming out about how much a mask can protect you and others from a respiratory virus 
and how it is transmitted. The latest data shows that when you look at the odds of testing positive for COVID-19, right? if you use a cloth mask, your odds are 56% lower. If you use a surgical mask, typically one of those blue masks that surgeons use, it's 66% lower. And if you're using an N95 or KN95 respirator, the chances of testing positive are 83% lower. So this is a proverbial no-brainer. Now, the problem early on was you couldn't find these masks. They were in short supply. Now they are everywhere. They are going to be given out free when you go to various stores. Uh, pharmacies will have them available for free. So um, it, it would be perfect to start using a mask and preferably the N95, which is something I wear um, whenever I'm in a closed situation, if I have to go to a store or I'm at work at the hospital. Now, about three weeks ago, we had a discussion on this program about monitoring wastewater for COVID-19. And I sometimes think maybe the CDC listens to the program because I had a gripe at the time. So three weeks ago, we talked about the importance of monitoring wastewater. And the reason it became important is because you can detect COVID-19 in a community much sooner by monitoring the wastewater in that community. Those studies were done at Yale and at UConn. And Connecticut really led the pack. We had a very robust wastewater monitoring system that was set up um, by the state at a cost of over $700,000, but it monitored the wastewater in our largest population areas. So uh, Norwich had it, New Haven, Bridgeport, Danbury, um, several other places. So it was a robust program to let us know when the COVID-19 numbers were going up. And the reason it's become reliable is because when we get these positivity rates, like the one I just gave you of 6.58%, that's based only on the PCR test done. So people doing a home test don't factor into that. Whereas if, you, if you're monitoring wastewater, it doesn't make any difference what test you've had. So it's a great program. But unfortunately, the state of Connecticut made this executive decision that they felt that that program was redundant with what they were already doing. So they decided to pull the plug on it. So the only place it was being done was in New Haven because Yale was able to get some private funding, private donations to keep it going in New Haven. And lo and behold, once again, we were ahead of the pack. We were out in front of the rest of the country when it came to this. So now the CDC has started its own national wastewater surveillance system that will have a dashboard just for COVID-19. So on this dashboard, you will be able to see if the numbers are going up in your area 
So it's 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 without prejudice, right? It's whether you want to go wait in line to get tested or not, okay? If you use a toilet, it will monitor COVID-19. So it was a great program we had in Connecticut, but again, we didn't see it as a priority. I am hoping now that the CDC sees it as a priority, we might be able to reallocate the funds necessary to keep us state here in here keep us safe here in the state of Connecticut I mean it's crucial and when you think of seven hundred thousand dollars a year um, I just read an article where they're putting in sidewalks in a town for six hundred thousand because they found money okay we have we're hearing about this found money that the state has and lowering taxes it's an election year but let's put some money into this prevention and this wastewater monitoring system really is something I think that's going to help save lives here in Connecticut. Um, I wanted to touch on a question. And, folks, if you have questions, just get them to me at info at alessimd.com. If they're uh, a question for me or any of uh, my guests um, that come up along the way. But uh, last week uh, I had a great question uh, from Steve. And I'm going to bring that right up here. And Steve's question um, was regarding the use of the vaccine. So here it is. Does a vaccine produce T cells? And have I seen any uptick in autoimmune diseases in vaccinated people? The answer is no. The vaccine does not produce T cells. But the interesting part of Steve's question is we believe that the vaccine imparts a certain amount of memory on existing T cells so that even if antibodies go down, there is some level of protection from those T cells that have a memory for an infection like COVID-19. So again, the vaccine really does produce safety and get us out in front. The second part of his question is, have I seen an uptick in autoimmune diseases in vaccinated people? And the answer is no. I've not seen any uptick in autoimmune diseases, nor have I read about them, and or nor any recurrences. Now, in my practice, I treat patients with things such as Guillain-Barre syndrome, myasthenia gravis, multiple sclerosis, and I've not, not only not seen any worsening, but no exacerbations of those illnesses or new illnesses after the vaccine. If anything, well, not if anything, we know that the vaccine helps keep people safe who have autoimmune diseases. So it's just the opposite. Steve, great great questions. Uh, I really appreciated those. And uh, those are the kind of questions we like to get. So if you have questions, uh, send them on over to info at alessimd.com. We're going to take a short break, and then we're going to be back with my guest, Dr. Setu Vora. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi, Saturday morning, 11 till noon, on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and it gives me great pleasure to welcome my guest today, Dr. Setu Vora. Dr. Vora is the Chief Medical Officer for the Mashantucket Pequot Tribal Nation. Um, he's someone I've known for a very long time. He's a pulmonologist um, in many years in private practice. 
And his career is really veered towards population wellness. Um, for those of you who are regular listeners to our program, uh, he came on and introduced the 51530 plan many years ago, where you had, you know, as a key to staying healthy, it was five portions of fruits and vegetables every day, 15 minutes of mindfulness, and 30 minutes of exercise. If you could do that every day, um, it would improve your health overall and your longevity. Um, not easy to do. Sounds simple, not easy to do. He's also taught us about the importance of philanthropy and volunteerism in helping our overall health. And today we wanted to bring him back to talk a little bit about lessons learned from COVID-19 and this pandemic and what we need to do for the future. Setu, welcome back to the show. Good morning, Dr. Lessi. Thank you for having me. So let's talk a little bit. What have you been working on? I mean, since the onset of COVID-19, we really haven't had a chance to talk much. And I know that this has just, um, just been right up your alley in terms of looking at population wellness. So what have you been up to? Thanks. Uh, Tony, it's been a whirlwind similar to most other people in healthcare. The last two and a half years seems like a blur. But there's also a sense of deja vu. Um, many of your viewers may not know this, but I grew up in India. And I did my training in medical school also in India. I joined internal medicine residency there. And I was exposed to a lot of severe infectious diseases during my training. So when I moved to the U.S., I thought I'm leaving those plagues behind. And lo and behold, we can only exchange them for new ones. And that's been the sobering lesson that um, it's an evolutionary battle between us humans and the microbes. In a sense, it is a huge uh, you know, fact that in my own body, we all have about 3 trillion human cells. But there are perhaps more than five trillion microbes inside me and on me. So essentially, all of us are chimera, where our body is both human and microbe, and we cannot live without those either. But then you have uh, a really powerful pathogen, such as the SARS coronavirus 2 that emerges um, and disrupts our way of living. So it's been uh, and humbling experience has been intense for the last two years with a lot of work around how do we prevent disease, prevent complications, and then prevent harm when we cannot prevent um, the disease in the first place. So what's most sobering about what you just said is the fact that it, it's almost like we haven't learned very much in the last hundred years or so. Because, there, I mean, people are thinking now, once we get over this, things are going to be, we're never going to have to do this again. And we know that it's going to happen again. And we have Absolutely. to find some way of coexisting. So do you sometimes get the feeling that what have we learned, really? Yeah, and we have not learned well to your, to your point, Tony. History is a remarkable teacher, if only we heed those lessons. And, um, you know, all of us have heard of, many might have read, you know, seminal books on the topic around the 1918 
great pan- pandemic with influenza that by some account killed almost 50 million people all over the world. Granted, this was before, you know, um, any kind of modern medicine, intensive care or treatment options. And uh, perhaps that might be an underestimate of death count as well. But it took almost another 100 years for a massive global scale pandemic such as COVID uh, to emerge. But to your point, the lessons are the same. Uh, the, The scary part is that now the world is even more connected. Uh, It just takes one airplane as a vector to transmit one virus or a bacteria across all the continents, right? Uh, We also know that as compared to 1918, the environment is under severe distress. We know that education is becoming harder. Um, You know, it's more of a battle for the mind space and the mindset and uh, how do we uh, make sure that positive, truthful information prevails? We know that the equity gap is widening, and that's not helping the case. And finally, due to whatever number of reasons, our empathy meter is running empty as well. So if you ever had to you know, put together a perfect storm scenario, uh, and I'm not a, you know, expert by any means with a crystal ball, but the intensity and frequency of pandemics is likely to accelerate in the next few decades. So let's talk about some of the points you raised already. Um, The first is education. Um, And I'm talking about education. I think we're talking about a more widespread educational effort, not just about a virus when it comes up, not just... Tony Alessi on the air telling you to wear a mask. Um, Can you talk a little bit about the education piece and what we need to do to get out in front of that? I I think it it starts with with home and family. Uh, Being more engaged in uh, civic duty, uh, engaged with uh, science, um, discrediting uh, disreputable sources that tend to divide us rather than unite us. It starts with those basic things uh, where we cannot let the you know, fundamentals of uh, common sense and science be put to death, essentially. And, uh, you know, it, it really begins with uh, it doesn't it doesn't mean that we all have to be in college or, you know, get master's or Ph.D. It's more about being aware of the of the uh, advances around us and the threats around us. And the best ways that we can, um, you know, prevent or protect ourselves and others. So I think it's certainly, you know, um, building trust so that we can provide and access timely information in a very transparent way. We just have to start with the basics. So you brought up another good point, and I guess that is... Um, you've touched on the fact that these vectors can travel anywhere. And we've become somewhat proprietary, for lack of a better term, in the sense that physicians, healthcare folks, probably the only specialty that really thinks truly globally has been the public health sector and infectious disease specialists. And Mm -hmm. how do we get to that point where 
we think more globally. And, and let me tell you where I'm going. I mean, even in this country now, we have so many restrictions about going from state to state to practice medicine or to take care of people, like with telemedicine and things like that. Will we ever get to the point where a physician has a global license um, so that when their skills are needed somewhere else in the world? Um, how, how do we get to this global medical practice? That's an excellent question, Tony. And, and certainly we can start you know, something local, such as you know, even credentialing between different hospitals within the same state. Right. Uh, it's all designed to uh, certainly, you know, manage a workforce. I, I get it. But to a large degree, it's also driven by the inherent turf or the, you know, bureaucratic need to have clubs and associations. There's no reason why an extremely well-trained U.S. physician who is licensed to practice in one state is deemed not really, you know, applicable across the state line. It's absolutely arbitrary. And I think the pandemic showed that when there is a need and when there is urgency, we are willing to put aside these, uh, you know, artificial uh, barriers that we have created more for business practices more than anything else. Right, because there's such a big fee involved whenever you go from place to place. Um, right. You know, and, and, and it's the same. Course, we want to make sure, you know, we want to make sure that the quality of the care provided, the safety of the care is outstanding. There's, there should be no compromise in that. So uh, how do we then assure universal uh, standard of education, qualification, maintenance of skills that is readily available to our patients across the state, across the country, across the world, like you said, and be able to access it. Information is flowing across the world. Skills should follow. uh, Absolutely. Uh, I'm glad uh, glad we touched on that because it's the same form you fill out for every state. It's the same information you have to do for every hospital, okay? Here in Connecticut, every hospital, you need to submit the same forms. So I didn't even think about getting it to be that granular down to that level. Uh, I guess the next thing you mentioned was empathy. I don't expect you to be a philosopher here, Setu, but, um, you know, you you raise a good point here um, because nothing has exposed our divisiveness uh, among uh, Americans uh, as this uh, pandemic. How do we move forward on that? Yeah, I think, you know, Tony, the simple fact is the act of empathy or compassion is actually a selfish act. And I I know it sounds paradoxical, but the fact that if if we are all able to help others around us, it actually makes us safer. And that can be extended to our own household, out to the neighborhood, to our surrounding states. And now we are seeing that gap of access to care where where millions and billions of people elsewhere are not getting the proper care just makes us more susceptible and vulnerable to the next wave of the variant. So the act of compassion is actually self-care. And the sooner we all realize that, perhaps we might act even more on that. 
Well, in talking about self-care, um, what are the things we need to be doing? I mean, because we know there are certain risk factors. You've faced that in the population you work with, um, with uh, Native Americans. Um, how are we? How should we be approaching that? Because whatever we've been doing so far hasn't necessarily been working to getting everyone's general health better so that they are not as vulnerable to a respiratory infection. Yeah, not, absolutely, Tony. And, you know, Perhaps the answer lies in um, our collective history. Perhaps it lies with our ancestors who knew, uh, you know, their own way of life back then. And if you just go back, you know, 100, 150, 200 years, not too far down in history, our ancestors followed the 3M model that you outlined at the beginning of the uh, talk, the menu mind and move. Uh, as you re- recapped it, you know, they ate locally, they ate fresh local produce. There was no refrigeration. There was no worldwide supply chain of getting sourcing of our berries from South America or our fruits from, uh, you know, somewhere else. It was all local and organic and seasonal. How may we reconnect with that ancestral practice of uh, mindful eating? Uh, our ancestors were mobile. They were active. They were on the go, hunting, gathering, foraging, farming. How do we reconnect with that physicality that does not necessarily involve just the Peloton or a gym, but just any kind of physical movement on a daily basis? I've added a couple more M to that 3M formula that we talked about. And those are how do we become more resilient by the act of making, make? All of us have the desire to share. Uh, whatever we create, we want to share with the world and our families and others. That act of creativity has been shown to reduce the stress, anxiety level, uh, and give us a sense of purpose and meaning, and just improve the quality of life tremendously. And the final M is meat. We are literally social animals. And the pandemic confirmed that, you know, the desire to be with others is strong. Um, And how do we reconnect as society, as neighborhoods? We are becoming more and more connected socially on on Internet and social media, but not really having meaningful, deep engagement in real life. Tony, I, you know it, the, the membership in organizations, social uh, you know, causes, churches, um, synagogues, all those volunteer organizations, they're facing a huge crunch. They're not having the people show up to do the work. Uh, maybe you know, uh, reconnecting with that social fabric is not only good for the mind, it's good for overall health as well. So um, the 5M model is truly an ancestral model. Our, our forefathers and foremothers knew that. And if we can combine that ancient wisdom with modern medicine, the benefits of modern medicine, you know that better than anybody else. The vaccines are phenomenal lifesavers. The new antiviral medications reduce harm and death and hospitalization. 
and the advances coming out in precision medicine are unimaginable 100 years back. So how do we get the best of both worlds? And I think that's mainly by combining the ancient wisdom of our ancestors and that same lifestyle with modern medicine. Now we are talking better, longer, higher quality of life for many more years. Setu, thank you. Um, you know, thank you for sharing all this information with us. And it's always good information, uh, especially when it comes to improving our longevity. Thanks for all the work you do. Um, it's been kind of a career shift for you, really, um, getting into so much of this wellness. And I know you have many followers on social media um, because I mentioned uh, to someone this week and said that you were going to be the guest. And I said, oh, I know him from his social media. So if you get a chance to follow Dr. Vora, um, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, anything else I'm missing, say to? No, mostly uh, Facebook and LinkedIn. Okay. Okay. If you get a chance to follow him, um, please do so. Say to, thank you for spending time with us today. Thank you so much. Have a great weekend, everyone. All right. We're going to take a short break. They're going to be back to wrap up the program. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi, Saturday morning, 11 till noon on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com. Just wanted to touch on uh, getting that out there. I just got a quick email. If you wish to follow Dr. Vora on uh, Twitter, it's at Setuvora, so it's at S-E-T-U-V-O-R-A. Um, these are great tweets worth following, and uh, it will certainly help uh, everyone. Uh, another question came in, and I just wanted to touch on that, was uh, if I've had COVID and I've been vaccinated and I've been boosted, am I now bulletproof? And the question is almost. Just remember, a bulletproof vest is there to prevent you from dying from getting shot. It's not going to keep you from getting shot. So um, you need to do what most you can do, and that is all three of those things. Um, if you didn't get COVID, well, then you've got to get the vaccine, you got to get boosted, and you still have to get back down to basics, right? Wearing a mask, washing hands, social distancing when possible and moving through life as we get back into it. It's been great being with you today. I want to thank my guest, Dr. Setu Vora. Many thanks to our studio producer. Anthony Dorenzo has been on the board again. Jeff Chandler is in charge of sales and marketing for Healthy Rounds. Next week, we're going to be talking about improving efficiencies in healthcare delivery in the United States. If you missed any part of today's program, you can get the podcast and download it from iTunes or from Odyssey. Next up on WTIC is Law Talk with Attorney John Matulis. Until next week, this is Dr. Anthony Alessi. Please stay healthy. This has been Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi. Sponsored by St. Francis Hospital, Ratchford Eye Center, Hartford Healthcare, MD Advantage, and UConn Health Orthopedics and Sports Medicine. Be sure to tune in next Saturday morning at 11 for more Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com.